Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. The Change of Life, or Wife, Wallace joked, besieged Leslie Bird at 50, settling first upon her vision so that whenever she looked in the mirror, whatever she saw was so blurry she could easily imagine herself fading away like the last little row of letters on an eye chart. C, or is it E, or G? Gosh, I don't know. Leslie had thought, squinting, who could be bothered? Why they made the letters so tiny was beyond her, a conspiracy she suspected, like menopause. When she realised the word red, paws of men, backwards, she decided they were out to get her. Men Latin optometrists, she'd roar at anyone who asked for an explanation, but no one did. It wasn't so much that Leslie Bird felt herself fading away as she aged, more that she was disappearing altogether. Not quite dead, but may as well be, her skin and bones with minds of their own, rearranging themselves to spite her, as if she'd been born squinting and scowling, bouffant in bifocals and cardigan, no matter the weather. All that had transpired in her life was being etched year upon year to reveal this final portrait. Some might say handsome, others terrifying, including Wallace, who wished he could thaw the earlier version of Leslie frozen in his mind, the green-eyed auburn-haired beauty he'd said I do to when he was the handsome lad who'd wooed her at the cinema on a double date with Cary Grant and Deborah Kerr in an affair to remember with a box of roses, chocolates, not flowers, twisting the red and gold wrapper from her favourite oozy caramel into a ring that Wallace slid upon her finger. When he asked her to do him the honour, right after Deborah Kerr said, anything can happen, don't you think? Leslie, a sucker for soft centres, said yes. Catherine Therese is an award-winning writer, designer and educator. Her memoir, The Weight of Silence, was the Age and City Morning Herald Book of the Year. Today, I'm joined by Catherine to talk about her first novel, Things She Would Have Said Herself. Catherine Therese, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. Things She Would Have Said Herself takes us deep into the life and into the mind of Leslie Bird, described as a matriarch, but from what I can tell, a reluctant matriarch. <laughs> Who is Leslie Bird? What has shaped her life? Oh, she's an irascible matriarch, that's for sure. And I think that's really interesting the question that you've posed right at the beginning, a reluctant matriarch, because central to Leslie Bird's life, I guess, uh, she's a woman who was born in the 1930s, is that she bought hook, line and sinker the orthodoxies of her time that marriage and motherhood would bring her happiness. In fact, there wouldn't have been anything else on the cards for her. She wouldn't have considered any other outcome for her life and when they don't bring her those things, she's really on the boil. She's, she's so disappointed with what life's brought her. She will go to any length and breadth to ignore her own pain and the pain of her children. And she, ultimately in the book, she's confronted by it. One terribly hot Christmas day in Sydney, 2013. Do you remember that significance of that year? Politically, Greg? 
Uh, yes, I do. Something to do with Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott and Kevin Rudd. The year we had three prime ministers. Just another thing to get on Leslie Bird's goat. Um, she's really not fond of change. She's almost incapable of it. So I thought I should place this final scene in a year that would, would have driven her insane as she drives us fairly insane during the book. Um, what has shaped her most profoundly is loss and grief. To return to what I said before about the orthodoxies of her time, they have shaped her. She's from a generation that was living between, you know, born in the Depression. Many, um, the, the chap she ends up marrying inhaled it as temperament. He was also born in the 30s. And their life is shaped by this lack of language and impetus to even talk about what's been going on because of the context of their lives at the time, living between wars. Um, there's a line in the book where Wallace Bird says, people didn't have feelings back then. And, you know, he's not actually feeling, there's no sympathy in what he's saying about that time. He's, he would have thought that it would be, you'd be a sissy if you'd felt sorry for yourself, that you just got on with things. Um, so it's all relative, I think, context and particularly for this book. But but always, you know, in our lives, we, we're so quick to judge others and I think context is critical. There's another thread running through her life, quite an influential one. She's a devout Catholic. But I wondered if Leslie was on the right path to salvation. I have to fess up here. The Catholicism, I grew up in a a loving but very chaotic, um, alcoholic, Catholic household in Blacktown in the 1960s. And it was very fertile uh, ground for the imagination. Uh, you know, we believed in one God, Father the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We did, we said we did every Sunday without any thought to what we were actually saying um, and then we would go home, you know, after church on a Sunday morning to appease and please and clean up what had been another fractious, scary Saturday night. And I, I, I think deeply what motivates me as a writer is to give voice to those disparities. It's interesting when you say devout Catholic, what does that mean? Because Catholicism is, it's habitual, it's a habit, it's something, somewhere to go, something to do. It's a regularity in her life. Uh, I don't think it gives her much solace. Um, and that adherence to a, a set of doctrines too is another, another set of orthodoxies which sit really beautifully, neatly into her way of, of thinking of a um, bit like how she feels about being married. You make a vow. You know, you get baptised into the Catholic Church. You stay the course without thought to perhaps what the virtues and ideology you know is actually about it's more it's more of a habit for her and not much consolation let's bring in wallace leslie's husband wallace is the man i hope i never become <laughs> now, why <I'm> greg <laughs> <laughs> well wallace has been shitting himself his whole life and that's a quote and is now literally in nappies now they're married but do they have a relationship well that's interesting because in your question there's a suggestion that marriage is something other than what they have and this is their marriage and this is a relationship that's, 
you know, 50 odd years in the making and they live side by side. At one point in the book, I talk about them being in a three-legged race to the grave. They're codependent. They spend all their time together. Um, They don't really know each other and neither of them expresses (laughs) themselves to each other with any depth Um, so the other person can't be let in. So they share children, they share a house. So in that sense, they're in a relationship together. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about marriage is what, what it means to, to each particular couple. He thinks his wife's wonderful, most wonderful woman in the world, he often <laughs> says, and usually in public. He's very satisfied. Leslie just has, from even before they were married, actually, she just cannot fathom what this situation is going to bring her. She hopes to be able to have children, but does she have to go through with the act, you know, um, the dreadful act that she's dreading? Um, And again, that goes back to her disembodiment. Um, And Wallace is, he was the first character, Greg, that appeared for me many, many years ago in the aftermath of a book, uh, a memoir that I had published. Um, And it's not lost on me that the first character was an elder. Well, he was a little boy when I first started thinking about him. Um, I had a, it sounds like such a cliche, but I actually did have a dream about a little boy standing in a field of wheat. And wheat was all he could see. That was his horizon. And um, he was Wallace Bird. And I placed him in Grenfell, um, made him a baker, um, because, as an ode to Lawson, actually, who's been a huge influence, Henry Lawson, in my life, um, his poetry. I found my dialect, I suppose, the, the, the vernacular that I was growing up with at home. And I didn't really know what I was reading, but there was something in the syntax, in the rhythm of that language that was deeply acknowledging. It soothed me. The, the rhythm of poetry has always soothed me. There was a line of his that uh, it honestly it runs through my head almost daily. We bow our heads, we brood and fret because of the masks we wear. We fight it down, we live it down and we bear it bravely well. But the best men and women die of broken hearts from the things they cannot tell. And so do families. Um, that's that line has just been circling around and around my head and I've probably misquoted it terribly. I do apologise, Mr Lawson, but it's that thing of the secrets and slights in people's lives that shape not only their lives but the generations, those who come after them. Leslie appears to be surrounded by a rather hapless family group, at least according to Leslie. Leslie's children don't appear to bring Leslie much joy or or much reason for celebration. What is the legacy of her and Wallace's parenthood? They're a mess. This family's a big mess. One of the things through Leslie's disembodiment, not ever experiencing her body as a place of pleasure, she's passed that self-loathing onto her daughters or to all of them. Michael has um, such a severe case of disembodiment um you know even to the point of this is a man we we hear from him towards the end of the book when he's 45 a man who's never been kissed and goes on all these dating sites trying to find someone and actually impersonates someone to attract someone and it's pretty challenging I think for readers to to understand that somebody could go to those lengths but that's 
that's a legacy of his parenting, walking into a room and his parents kind of looking at the floor, feeling ashamed of him. Um, what does that do to you when you're a child and your parents can't hold your gaze? One of the daughters, Carolyn, is has sort of formed herself, I guess, in opposition to these people. So the legacy for her is to try to carve out. She's a visual artist. She's a painter and actually sets about um, painting. Well, she thinks they're self-portraits, but they're actually very um, evocative of, of her family. Um, she's a cat amongst the pigeons in the book. The other girls, um, uh, Bernadette and Shelley, have really sad, lonely lives of a disconnect to self. And that goes deeply back to Leslie's ideology that if you don't say something, it doesn't exist. You know, all the unpleasant things in life will disappear, can go away if we just don't talk about them. And I think she thinks that's honourable. I think she thinks that's a really good virtue. It's it's a good thing to keep quiet about things that are unpleasant. But we we know how important naming things are. You know, if you name something, you can escape it. And I think she really disabled her children by dubbing them with this silly language, these words that she enforced that they use in place of real language. That's a very deep legacy that runs through all of the kids when we see how they try and fail to communicate with their partners and subsequently their children. You know, there's grandchildren in the book, so we get to see all the trickle down. As I read the book, it seemed to me that you condensed all of the people's problems in the whole world into one single book and the very title Thing she would have said herself suggests that uh, regret seems to be one of the big ones. It's almost a genetic preoccupation in the Bird family. I don't think Leslie, apart from the fact that she has this enormous loss, um, enormous loss, profound loss in her life uh, of a child that's never ever discussed. You know, this was in the 60s. She has a child. We didn't talk about that before, but that's central to the book is that this the absence of a child who who died is is so profound for her that her living children never actually come close to satisfying her in terms of what she imagines this lost child could have made of his life and so there's regret in that sense but I don't think Leslie Bird or Wallace are smart enough or self they have no self-awareness so to me, you you have to have a fair degree of self-awareness to have regret. Perhaps it's one of those words that they can't actually say in the bird household. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I certainly think regret is something that you take away from the book that, you know, there's all those twists and turns in people's lives where, um, you know, had somebody acted a little bit more kindly, those junctions where we make decisions. You know, Leslie's sitting in the car watching her engagement ring glinting in the side mirror before they they marry and Wallace's dog's in the back of the car, you know, passing wind. And she has a moment where she thinks, is this what life's going to be about? You know, I'm going to be suffocated, trapped in a V-dub with a farting dog and a man I don't really love and I'm going to make a run for it. And she decides in that moment she won't make a run for it because she doesn't want Wallace to see her bottom wobbling as she's running away. And you think, oh, isn't that absurd? But, you know, what would have happened if she'd gotten out of the car and walked away? And there's all these lives that tumble out, you know, after they're married and they have this family and 
when you have that huge disconnect with yourself, I think it has, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I've been observing it deeply. It's what I've paid attention to in my life. While this book is, I guess, full of grief, uh, regret, tragedy, there's also a line of humour here, of a sardonic kind, I might say. How do you bring those together as a writer? Oh, through sanity. It's it's the quest for sanity, um, my own, um, as the writer, but it's also the absurdity of life. And I think for me, you can only really write funny, really funny stuff when you've there's nothing at stake for you. You you understand the characters, you're you're getting them to interact with each other in a way. I mean, the, the, the concerns of the book are mine. I hope that humour doesn't diminish the very deep concerns that I have in the book. You know, I've written about some pretty crazy people to shine a light on how people like that come to be in the world and why they think the way that they do. It's not to... You know, when I'm asking readers to to be compassionate and have some understanding, you know, compassion means to suffer with them. And I, I guess that's asking a lot to suffer along with these people. But it's my deep hope um, and belief that that empathy creates understanding. And if we can understand each other, we can we can live a little bit more harmoniously with each other. And you've got to be able to laugh about it all. Without going into sort of scenes from the book, one one that just popped into my mind is Wallace welcoming his prospective new son-in-law to the table who's Muslim. He has no idea about what, you know, Leslie's cooked pickled pork. Um, she, you know, with just completely, completely irreverent, but also completely ignorant. And then when Amir, this character, doesn't eat the pickled pork, Wallace grabs his car keys and ducks off to the shopping centre to go and buy him something and he ends up coming back with something halal. He's got no idea, but he's got good intentions. He wants this bloke to feel welcome in his house. And I think we find joy when we let go of judgment of one another, when we look deeply at what people's intentions are and how we fail time and time again. And to me, it's it's awful, but it's also really funny. For the life of me, I don't know why anyone would want to eat pickled pork. <laughs> but <laughs> we used to have it with white sauce and cabbage on Saturdays. Oh my goodness, I still can't go near it. Catherine Therese, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been talking to Catherine Therese about her novel, Things She Would Have Said Herself. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.